The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Church, I'm excited for our time together. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them? And uh, would you find your place with me to the book of Amos? So here at uh, Stone Oak, we preach through books of the Bible together, and uh, we are in the early chapters of Amos uh, together. And um, listen, don't feel bad. We've already talked about this, but don't feel bad, because chances are this is a pretty unfamiliar book to you. Uh, for many of us, we've talked about this, that have not spent a good deal of time in this book before. But here's the thing, that's okay, because we're going to change that, all right? Amos is, uh, the technical term, an awesome book. Um, I love this book. It has been a joy so far um, being in it. And so our plan this morning is to finish out the first three chapters, to finish out chapter three. And uh, for anyone who is new with us, for anyone who missed maybe the, some of the weeks leading into this, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I am going to try to get us caught up with three statements. Okay, we're going to summarize it all, bring it together with three statements that are going to kind of get us to where we're ready to close out chapter three. So three statements, and we'll start with the first one. I think, there we go. Amos was God's unlikely outsider prophet. Mouthful, but Amos was God's unlikely outsider prophet. What I mean by this, Amos was a shepherd. Um, we don't have the, uh, you know, shepherds today, most of us. Um, but what that means is he was on the lowest rung of the social ladder. Just this unlikely, um, kind of a nobody in the world standards. That was Amos. More than that, though, he was from a small town in Judah, and I say small town, and that is a gracious term, because it was actually a small suburb connected to a very small town in the southern um, um, country of, of Judah. So he's not even from Israel, in other words, which is just un unbelievable, because we have this unlikely outsider, yet he was God's man. So in Amos, we see God has a message for Israel and he has a messenger to deliver that message to Israel. An unlikely um, outsider prophet. Um, and we see in Amos 1 through 3, God's word makes this abundantly clear. Amos was God's man to deliver this message. All right, statement number one. That was an easy one. This second one is a weird statement, but I've said it over and over, so I figure might as well put it up here. Statement number two, um, I see them... And let's talk about you. Okay, what this is, is it goes back to this imagery that I want us to have in our minds as we come to Amos. It's like a kid who gets in trouble and his dad pulls him to the side. And it's like the kid says, um, 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 you know, did you see what my brothers did though? I mean, dad, you're being unfair. You're being unfair. Did you see what they did? Did you see what's going on with them? And, and what, what God's word does in Amos, in the first two chapters, is, is in Amos, you see one by one God calling out Israel's neighbors, squeezing in around them. And it's like what God is saying is, son, 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 look me in the eyes, hear my voice. 
I see them. I know what they are doing. All right, I got them. I know your brothers, okay? I see them. I've got them. Look me in the eyes. Let's talk about you. That is what Amos is doing, setting the stage. As God, as our perfect, loving, heavenly father, says, son, daughter, look me in the eyes. I see them. I know they're crazy, and I've got them. Chapters 1 and 2 is very clear. He not only sees them, he's got them. He's got them in his hands. He's sovereign over all of that. And now let's talk about you. Now let's, let's talk about you, which leads me to the third statement, which is this. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those that he loves. Discipline stings, and it's not pleasant at the time, but it is good. It is good. It is for our good. Hebrews 12 um, says this, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. In Amos, it's like God is shining his light on his people's heart. And here's the reality. This is the same for them as it is for us. Um, your sin, our sin, loves dark corners. Loves it. It thrives in dark corners, dark spaces. Your sin loves, wants nothing more than for you to just leave it be, leave it in that dark corner, go do you, and leave me alone. That's what your sin wants you to do because it loves dark spaces, dark corners. But God loves you too much to leave you there. He's a good and loving father who is disciplining us, not because he hates you, and not because he's cranky, but he disciplines us because he loves us. And his discipline in your life is the great evidence of his love in your life. All right. Three statements gets us to where we need to be. Um, we are here now. All of this has led us up to this morning where we now turn a corner, and it's a painful one to turn. Um, from here, we're going to shift. See, we're, not, we're no longer talking about Amos, the unlikely outsider prophet, God's man. We're not talking about him anymore. We're also not talking about them anymore, those, those terrible neighbors. What about my brothers? We're not talking about them anymore. Now there is a shift in our text today where God is starting to, to now shine his light inward. And with that being said, we pick up actually in verse 9. In verse 9 of Amos 3, we're just going to walk through this little by little. By little. So verse 9, Amos 3, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. Amos here brings out um, Egypt and Ashdod. And um, here's the thing, though. This message not, is not for Egypt or Ashdod. He brings them out. This message, though, was for Israel and Israel alone. And they would have gotten it. Um, and what's going on here is for, for ancient Israel, this is an appeal to their judicial system. And, and let me tell you, 
It's going to be very similar to what we see today. This will, this will, apples to apples here, comparison. This is a reference back to their judicial system. And here's the main principle. Witnesses matter. Witnesses are important. The bigger the crime, the bigger the judgment, the bigger the potential punishment, all the more important are the witnesses. Okay? And so in Amos verse 9, 3 verse 9, what this is, church, this is Amos calling his witnesses. This is God calling Ashdod and Egypt. Notice the call is not to assemble your great armies and wipe them out. Be my judgment, bring the heat, conquer them. No. Their call was to get on the mountains where you can see and what? See, witness. This is witness language. He's calling witnesses to bear witness against the great wickedness and sin and oppression within his people. He's calling the witnesses, and there is no doubt that the people of Israel would have felt that one. No doubt. They would have felt this one. Their minds would have been drawn back to verses like Deuteronomy 17, 6, that says, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. You hear that? It's a, Amos here is bringing out witnesses, not one, Ashdod, but two, Ashdod and Egypt. Get there and see this. Witness this. Serious judgment is coming, and two witnesses, not one, but two witnesses are being called. This would have resonated in the ears of Israel. They would have heard this and the point would have been made so clear that God has a case against them. There is sin in the camp. And there's this word here in our text. The word was oppression. And I want to bring this out because this is one of the words. We haven't seen it much yet, but we are about to see a lot of it. Oppression is one of the main words, the main themes that is going to be all throughout, a common thread throughout the rest of Amos. Oppression. We're going to see it come out again and again and again and again, and we get our first taste of it here. And so now, right after Amos calls the witnesses, see this, then he says in verse 10, they do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So this right here is God's pronouncement on them. They don't know how to do right. They store up violence and robbery. That's that oppression we talked about, storing it up in your, in your storehouses. So um, listen, I want to bring out something here. We're reading this as Americans here in north central San Antonio, Texas in the year 2022. With Amos and with all of the other prophets, by the way, there is always going to be some kind of cultural gap that we're going to have to try to bridge as we seek to understand and apply and, and, and to grapple with this text. In other words, Amos is giving this message to Israelites in the ancient Holy Land about 2,772 years ago. And you are not an Israelite living in the ancient Holy Land about 2,772 years ago. There is a gap there is a gap that we bridge. So as we unpack this, we're going to do our best to bridge that gap. But hear me, in some ways, um, that gap is going to feel small 
when we deal with Amos. In many ways, we are going to be able to relate well without much imagination to Amos. In fact, this is one of the reasons that drew me to Amos at the very beginning. Remember, um, I said this at the very beginning, but Amos was what I uh, like to call the good time prophet. What I mean by that is there were some prophets like uh, Jeremiah or Micah who were not good time prophets. They were very bad time prophets. They were ministering to the people when it was, it was dark. There was conquest. There was captivity. There was no financial stability. It was chaos. It was nasty. That was Jeremiah and Micah. And they were calling out in that darkness. Amos is not that guy. Amos is a good time prophet. And what I mean by this, things were going well in Israel at this time. Um, they were in a place of financial security, stability, prosperity. Now, not everything is perfect was not perfect. Not that there wasn't, you know, it's not that everything was great for everyone. Not the case. There, it's not that there were no conflicts. It's not that there was no crazy stuff going in, on in the world at this time. Um, hear me, inside, inside uh, track information here. Living between the Garden of Genesis 1 in the city in Revelation 21, there's always going to be craziness, okay? The world's always crazy. This is us living in a fallen world. So back then, they still had the crazy. So, so I'm not saying everything was perfect. What I am saying, though, is this was a relatively safe and secure and prosperous time for, for the people it's a lot like our world today, and, and hear me, I'm not saying everything is awesome. It's not, and I'm not saying that there's not difficult things in this world. I'm definitely not saying, I, I think we have enough crazy in the world um, to last us a while, right? We definitely have our crazy. So, but, but like ancient Israel, I think we also need to realize how blessed we are. How blessed we are. That we're not dealing with conquest and invasion. We don't have an invading army on our streets outside right now. Praise God for that. We, we live in north central San Antonio, m many of us. Um, this is an absolutely beautiful community. I love our community. We are, we are blessed. Now, it is way too hot here. <laughs> I'll give you that one. But I love it here. I love our community. We are blessed. And as we will see, we are a lot like the people in our text, and Amos here is ministering to a people who are a lot like us, a lot like us. And here in our text, we see God's people in Israel. They had been blessed. They had so much to be thankful for. But in the midst of all of that blessing, what we're seeing here is God shining his light onto the wickedness of their hearts. What we're seeing here is the, that it's possible to be prosperous on the outside and to be wicked and dark on the inside. We're seeing this in the, in the people. And what we're seeing here, and we're only seeing a little glimpse of it, but it's about to, that snowball is going down the hill. Okay, just fair warning what's coming. But we're seeing here, they were not caring for the poor. In fact, they were trampling, using, robbing, abusing the poor. The riches that they had were on the backs of the oppressed. They were using people, hurting people, and God was calling them to account because they do not know how to do right. 
And there is robbery and violence and oppression. And so God says in verse 11, Therefore, because of that, says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. So all that safety, all that security, all that prosperity, it will be plundered. And we have to ask, just if we were in their shoes as the people of God, how could that be, God? How could, that, how could you let that happen? How could you use a really wicked next-door neighbor to bring judgment on your people. Like, how could this be? And more than that, this language is so vivid. This next verse hurts. Verse 12. Verse 12 here. Thus says the Lord. Ready for this? As the shepherds rescue from the mouth of a lion two legs and a piece of an ear, (laughs) so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. With the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Okay, that is vivid language, and you don't need to be a shepherd in ancient Middle East to understand that vivid language. If Israel is to be saved or rescued, they will be like a ravaged animal where you have one leg over there and then a piece of an ear over here. Or like the, the, the house that's destroyed and you find a leg of a couch over there and a part of a headboard over there. That's how they are going to be. I read this book this week and it had a fantastic one-liner in it. And um, I had to share it. Listen to this. All hope of survival is shattered and only enough will survive to prove who the victim was. Ugh. Like that, that that's, ooh. That's the kind of language that, that God is, is, is using here. It's vivid. And, and to make things even more clear, I want us to take in our final three verses. Um, verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, God of hosts. In other words, Amos, hear this, testify this, give them my message. Then he says, verse 14, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. That was first. Then let's go to verse 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish. The great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Verse 14 here, by the way, what we see here is God's judgment on the secular spaces, the temple, the holy temple, the the same place that the Old Testament, the books of Moses, takes so much care in protecting and building and describing judgment on that, on the holy temple of Yahweh, God is going to judge. And it's not only the, the sacred spaces, but then in verse 15, it shifts. That church, that's the secular spaces. Those are houses. Those are residents. We see places of re- residence. So it's not only the, the altars, it's the homes. And um, again, in this, by the way, if you just look, you can see the affluence that I was talking about. If you see here, 
Throughout the book of Amos, we have the poor being trampled. And they have their winter houses, along with those summer houses. They have houses of ivory, and they have great houses. You see the affluence. And to contrast that with the oppression of the poor, and God is bringing his judgment and it is extensive, and it is both on the secular and sacred spaces, and it is sure to happen. One more quick observation before I move forward. Would you notice, just in these verses right here, would you notice the pronouns? On that day, I punish. I will punish. I will strike. The pronoun here is I. That means it is very clear that it is the Lord doing this, bringing the judgment. Even though he may use a neighboring nation to accomplish it, it is the Lord who did this. I am pouring out my judgment. It is I that will do this. So, we walk through this. Now, I want us to put this together a little bit. Um, as I said, I think we've turned a corner here, and, and what God has done is he's taken our attention off of um, Amos and those guys out there. He's turned it, and he's drawing our attention to ourselves and shining his light on his people. For us today as the church, reading this, my hope is that the Holy Spirit would shine his light on us, our hearts, in this. We're starting this journey now into the heart of the message of Amos, and um, what I'd like to do is to, in many ways, get us ready for what is coming. And the way I want to do this is I want to make um, some brief statements that, that we're going to, just in their simplest form, they're going to be quick, they're going to be short, but these three statements, I think, sum up the call that we have in response to this text and where God is taking us in Amos. In other words, you're going to hear this again and again and again. Um, the first one is this. The first statement is remember who you are. Um, this might be subtle, but I don't want us to miss this. Don't forget. For Israel, let's start with them. For Israel, specifically that meant Egypt. We've seen this already in chapter 3, verse 1. Don't forget, as a people, here's the thing. The people of Israel were once slaves. They were once the ones beaten, beaten down. They were the ones who were once oppressed. They were the ones who were building the most wealthy and powerful nation at that time on their backs. They were slaves. They were oppressed in Egypt. But God, being faithful and rich in mercy, delivered them. This is why Amos 3, verse 1, if you look back, what does he say? He says, hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, the whole family, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. O Israel, remember who you are. He's drawing their attention back. 
You got to wonder, had they forgotten? Had they forgotten? Um, Because now the oppressors, the, the oppressed had become the oppressors. Now, the slaves were the ones oppressing the poor. Now, the oppressed ones were now robbing. They were now using violence. They were now building their wealth on the backs of the poor. Had they forgotten? God calls them, don't you dare forget. I'm the one who brought you out. Don't forget who you once were, that God saved you, delivered you. You were once poor. You were once oppressed. Don't forget. In the same way, church, Don't forget. Don't forget. It is so easy to forget. We can look at the crazy world that I had already talked about, that crazy world out there. We can look at them and just in so much frustration and anger and think, how could they think that way? How could they act that way? How could they post that, right? How on earth? And be so frustrated with all of them out there and at the same time completely forget who we are that completely forget that God saved us, delivered us, demonstrated his great love for us, not because we were awesome, but when we were dead in our sins, that we were once poor, blind, and dead, that we were once in bondage, and apart from that grace that would be us still, we cannot forget who we are. But we can so easily forget Ephesians 2. It says you were dead, and then says, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. By grace you have been saved through faith. I once was lost, but I am now found. As we sing that song, I once was blind, but now I see. It is easy to forget. As gospel people, we can easily forget the gospel. As gospel people. We can so easily forget the gospel. Can you relate? We are all prone to forget. Even if you didn't raise your hand. I raised it for you. (laughs) We are prone to forget. And here's the thing. We can read about these crazy Israelites here and think, come on. Do you not remember the Red Sea was parted for you? Do you not remember manna from heaven? Come on, right? We can see them and get frustrated, and then at the same time, if we're not quick to realize, we're we're just like them. We are just like them. We forget that we have been forgiven, so we don't offer forgiveness. We forget that we have been given grace upon grace upon grace. And so we refuse to show grace. We forget that we have been loved, and so we do not show love because they haven't earned it. We forget, we forget, we forget who we are. So, like with Israel, we start here. We start with remembering. Because you're forgetful. You're forgetful on like grocery lists. You're definitely forgetful when it comes to the gospel. We remind ourselves, which by the way, this is what we're doing every week when we come here. This is why this matters so much that we come here. Think about communion. What do we talk about? 
It's a chance for us to do what Jesus said. As often as we take this, we remember. Why did he do that? It's because he knows you and you're forgetful. So each week we come and we gather. We never stop gathering so that we can remember who we are. And this leads us to the second statement here, love people. Okay. Um, When we remember that we are loved, then we recognize that our call is to love. And and here's the crazy thing. God actually cares about this. He cares about the way we treat people, the way we care for people, the way we love people. He cares how we treat people. And here's the thing. It's not an Old Testament thing, and it's also not a New Testament thing. This is a both Testament thing because this is a heart of God thing. This is a heart of God thing. And, and in fact, um, if you were to you know, want to go with me here, you can. But if you hold your place in Amos and flip to the right, scroll on your devices, however you get there. In, in John, John 13, Jesus is teaching this very thing. And he makes this statement, and it's incredible. He's teaching here in verse 34, and he, and he says, A new commandment I give to you. You know this text, that, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Just to be clear, this whole new commandment thing, it's not that loving people was new. Okay? That's not it. What is new is the radical, incredible degree of love that was demonstrated through the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's the new part. Jesus takes this to a new level. That's the new part. Love of neighbor is not new for the people of God. Jesus is just going to help them see what love of neighbor actually looks like and what it costs. And he says, just as I have loved you, and I'll continue to love you, you also are to love one another. And then in verse 35, right after that, he says, by this, I want to hone in there, by this, you or people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, so read this, understand this. God's people are not going to be the ones known for our wealth, our ivory houses, our summer and winter homes, our prosperity, even our temple and our worship. That's not how God's people are going to be known. God's people are not going to be known for their great power, their great armies, their their great political power and weapons. They're not going to be known for their riches or their poverty. We'll get to that later. That's not how they're going to be known. Jesus says, the people of God, my people, are going to be known for their love. Their love for God and love for neighbor. I could, I could go on, but I'm not, because the next one connects with this, and we have, to, we have to get here. So remember who we are. Love people, use money. Okay, love people, use money. Here's the thing, though. In our sinful heart, we have this crazy tendency to want to flip these and to, and to want to use people in our love for money. When we fail to remember who we are, we can so easily use, or use people 
to pursue our greatest love, which is, which is money. In the, our hearts and the hearts of the people in ancient Israel in 750 BC, God calls that out. And our hearts is to flip this around, to love money and to use people. And listen, I don't care how much you have, how much, what you drive, um, how much you make. God is looking deeper to your heart. He's looking deeper into the way that you love and the way that you treat people. And he has given you all that you have so that you can use it, steward it well to love people well. And yet too often, we, we can flip this around. Our temptation is to see the people in our life as the tools. Um, to be used for our own gain, to get ourselves ahead. And that is what we see being called out here in Amos. God's way is to flip that sucker on its head. Say, no, no. We use our resources, our time and our talents and our treasure. Those are the tools being given to us so that we may love people well. That we would use money to love people instead of using people to love money. This is huge in an affluent community. In a relatively affluent community like ours and like ancient Israel at this time. That we would use money, and that we would love people. And I want to speak to something directly here because we get real wonky when it comes to money. Um, and, and we do a funny thing. We tend to run to one extreme or the other. Um, and, and so on the one hand, we might have this tendency to want to run over here. And we either think that um, having a lot of it means that God likes us a lot and loves us and following him means that we're happy and healthy and wealthy and we're awesome and it's good and 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 here's the thing all of our stuff just shows the world how much God loves us and has blessed us um that's known as prosperity gospel theology and it's garbage it is absolute, complete, and total garbage, and it's anti-gospel. It's a lie. Um, wealth, good. Poverty, bad is, is a lie, okay? It's over here. That's one tendency. We also have another tendency, though, and that's to run the other way. And, and what I mean by this is to say, money is evil. And to follow Jesus means that we forsake it all, and then we follow him, and we live in poverty for the glory of God. Right? And, and to have less money shows the level of our holiness <laughs> as a blessed people of God. So poverty, good. Wealth, bad. Um, that's called pros or poverty gospel theology. And um, as, as hard as I was on this prosperity side, let me tell you, this is equally garbage. It's equally false. Um, it's equally anti-gospel. Whether you're prosperity or poverty, it is equally destructive to the gospel, the heart of the gospel message. And I want to go back to Jesus' words here. We are not known for the specific size of our bank accounts. That's not how we're known. We're not known for the specific size of our homes and 
the, the, the cars that we drive, we're not known for those things, whether they be great or little. We're not known for those things. We are known specifically for our love. That means that as the people of God, we are not as a whole lower class people, upper class people. We're not even the safe middle class people either. We're a gospel people in and through whatever rung God happens to place you on for his glory. We're a gospel people, first and foremost, with whatever resources God has placed in your hands to steward. God cares how you use the things that he's given you in your hands to use for his glory and to love people well. He cares for this. And I would love for us to just, in this moment, I'll calm down, um, to take kind of an inventory of how we're doing. Are we loving people with the tools that God has given you? Are you using people to get more tools? <laughs> how can we, how can you better love people and use money and get off of this thing that just want, makes it to where you just want to keep collecting cooler and cooler things and tools? How can we actually use those well? I'm not going to answer that for you now because Amos is just going to poke you and punch you for the next three months. <laughs> Welcome to Stone Oak, right? Um, and, and it's good for us. It's good for us. But I want you to think, how can we do this? Amos is going to drive us to examine our hearts and, and to set the stage for, for what is to come here. God cares more about how you love and treat people then he cares about how much or little you make, how big or small your home is, how much or how little you have in your savings account because it's the Lord who both gives and takes away and it is ours to still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Right. There's this, um, Paul in First Timothy, there's this text that says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think this really points to the real issue. See, wealth and money, those aren't the real issues. Wealth and money aren't the real problems. Our hearts are the problems. Our hearts are the problems. For Israel, the problem wasn't their prosperity. We're going to get to that in weeks to come. The problem wasn't that they were in this good time. That wasn't the problem. The problem was their hearts, and in the same way for us, there's nothing new under the sun. Your heart is the problem. Don't lie to yourself. Your heart is the problem. God calls us to remember, to love people, to use money, and I have to add this, repeat, okay? Rinse and repeat. You, you, got, you got to repeat this again. So to say this more specifically, in a world that loves money and uses people, we as gospel people are first called to remember who we are. We are called to remember who we are in Christ, to remember what Christ has done for us, to remember the perfect love that God demonstrated to us while we were dead in our sins. Christ died for us. We are called to remember who we are, to remember the gospel. From that, from that place, we are then called to love the people in your life. Even the hard ones, and I know you got hard ones. 
and even those who do nothing to benefit you, who have nothing, you have nothing to gain. And because we remember who we are, that we had nothing to offer to make us adoptable before God. We were adopted because he loved us and has grace. We remember that. And so therefore we love people. And to go along with that then, we, we look at all of our resources, our time, our talents, and our treasures, our money. We look at that and we ask, how can I love people with these? How can I serve people with these? How can I be a gospel light with these? And then here's the thing. Right around here, you start to have that crazy thing that we call gospel amnesia. Where you start to forget who you are again. And you start to hoard this and use this. Right? That starts to happen right around here. And so what you do is you repeat. And then you go back to the drawing board and you remember who you are again. You remember what God has done again. You understand that you are prone to wonder and leave the God that you love. So here, our hope as a church is that we will continually gather together. This matters because in this moment, we remember together. But here's the thing. We remember together so that when we leave and we scatter, we scatter as a people who remember the gospel. We remember and we scatter out. See, Amos is a cautionary tale for us. Please listen to it. God cares about the way we treat people. This matters. He didn't just say, hey, I saved you. That's cool. We'll see you later. He cares. He cares about your heart. He is sanctifying you. He is using you to love the people in your life, in your school, your office, your house, your neighborhood, your community, wherever God places you. That circle is your people to love. And you're going to give an account. This is the thing we see in Amos. You're going to give an account for the way you stewarded what God has given you. And my prayer is that we will hear this and see this word to Israel and that we would search our hearts and we would repent where we are using people, that we would repent for our idolatrous hearts to our stuff, that we would confess our forgetfulness, and that we would live with intentional, gospel-driven, generous lives with others. That we would not use people in our love of stuff, but we would flip that around. And we'd love people with all of our stuff. Starts with you, starts with me. We love people, use money, and in all things, we rinse and repeat, we remember who we are. I have to stop somewhere. Um, I want to welcome you back, because we're going to keep this going. 